You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Content warnings for this episode include earthquakes, death of loved ones, grief, trauma, ghosts, nightmares, complex and complicated relationships, curses, possession, environmental collapse, apocalypse, war, fire, immolation, romance, flirting, and references to birth, suffocation, and sexual entanglements. Arc 1, Episode 15, A Fang-Laid Bear, from Self-Eulogy of a Martyr by Connie Chong. Kim Soo-hyun has always been difficult to read. When they were seven and a root quake rocked the storm-blessed palace of Chongsin Surge, they didn't run for safety like everyone else did. They simply stood still and observed. When they were 13 and their father died, they didn't weep with the other mourners. They simply sat in a corner and watched the Mudong purge his spirit. Even when they were born, they uttered not a single sound, chilling the royal midwife to the bone. So when the Scion of Soul did not show up to the Tournament of Heirs, and the Scion of Body was gone by the morning, Him Soo-hyun was remarkably calm. Even as the royal bells of the Raya sounded in alarm, even as watch parties scoured every floating island, even as the exhausted scouts returned empty-handed to a thunderous King Zahar, Him Soo-hyun did not panic. They did not fret. They did not pace the halls, surrounded by worried Ryan attendants reassuring the young prince. While that wasn't exactly true, there were worried Ryan attendants, and they were trying to reassure the young Prim, but Him Soo-hyun needed no reassuring. When Abasi was declared missing, they retreated to their guest chambers to do what they always did when things were dire. They set up their ancestral shrine, they knelt before it, they placed their father's silver crown upon their head, and they waited for a vision. When Suhyun was seven, they saw the root quake before it struck. When they were 13, they saw their father's possession before the dark spirit killed him. Even when they were an infant in the womb, they saw their birth before it occurred. And so they were unafraid, and so they did not cry. Kneeling now in an unfamiliar room in an unfamiliar palace on an unfamiliar island in an unfamiliar reach, Prin Him recites the vow of mind their father taught them when they were three and that they know better than the contours of their own name. 
Their mind opens. They see what they must, and they know what they have to do. In the weeks following Abasi's disappearance, Suhyun is largely ignored by the people of the Raya. The kings and queen are preoccupied with internal disputes. The admiral is gone to war. Their assigned attendants are distracted. Besides, Suhyun is not exactly a memorable presence. Their height is middling, their slender frame slips between forgotten cracks, their skin is a dusty gray that blends into the shadows. Their face is striking, but in a plain way, a soft jaw, dewy eyes of washed out black, white hair pulled into a bun with thin wisps framing their cheeks. The most eye-catching part about them is their crown. A regal, elaborate wreath of sapphires and jade. We find Suhyun now, standing in front of King Masu's private study, staring intently at the closed doors with their hands clasped in front of their waist. If they notice your party's approach, they don't show it. Their gaze is fixed on the dark wooden grain of the shut double doors before them. As Abasi draws to a confused halt, her eyes narrow, it doesn't take an introduction to realize who this person could be. Their loose, flowing robes are nothing like the feathers and leathers of the Raya. What do the three of you do? Sayer approaches, and I think he looks to Abasi, almost asking for permission, but not really. It's more of an informing that he is just going to move a little forward. And he just lets out a clumsy but resonant, Hey, what are you doing over there? Oh, hello. Like I said, I'm trying to read the king's mind through this door, but it's not going very well. Because of, well, the door. You can do that. Zainan steps forward, not as far ahead as Seer, his hand disappearing into the folds of his clothes. Yes, yes, I can read minds. And you typically read the mind of... The king? No, it is not a habit I've fallen into because, again, there is a door in the way. Zainan looks at Abasi, kind of looking to see if she portrays any shock, confusion, concern, etc. Yeah, her entire face is crumpled in and darkened with just pure confusion. Uh, Prince him, probably because the door is locked and my father isn't seeing anyone? Uh, yes. This is true. And I do not have the key, so you can understand my predicament. So you set out, are sitting outside a locked door, not necessarily, you never knocked or it never intrigued you to find something that would help amplify what it is that you're trying to do. Not saying that you should, but. Well, I did try knocking, but no one answered the door and I don't know where the key is. So instead of taking that as a sign of the person not wanting to speak, you decided to listen instead. No, I'm not trying to listen. Besides, I can't hear anything. Anyway, I'm trying to read his mind. And you need his eyes? Like, sight? Yes. Yes, I need to make direct eye contact with him, which, again, is very difficult given the fact that there is a door in the way. I don't understand what is so confusing about this. 
hearing the sign and looks down <laughs> at the ground. Lumira literally just like sits there and like, like adjusts her stance and like her hands reach and sit on her arms. Her eyebrows are crumpled and confusing and also being a skeptic. So you decided that impeding on someone's I have nothing. And she just puts her hands up and steps back. Like, I, I actually don't. Literally mirroring Lumira in positioning and just presence and gesture. Like, Sayer also has his arms on his waist and is staring at the print. And once Lumira says that she has nothing, Sayer just goes, okay, so you want to read The Mind of the King? Yes. Very badly. Why? Well, because I'm worried about him. Something strange in Arconautico is at play with his odd behavior, which has of course only worsened in the past few weeks since I've arrived at the Raya. So I figure if I read his mind, I'll figure out what's happening and I can maybe help fix everything. Zynan steps forward, pulls his hat down and very formally nods his head in an attempt at a bow, but not a full bow because also Abasi's there and it's there's a strange hierarchy going on in this hallway, and he just kind of pauses. Would you like to have this conversation somewhere a little more private? Would I like to? Not particularly. I'm quite intent on this door. Uh, you see, what you are talking about might be a little bit indelicate for this setting. It's rather late, and this is the hallway leading the main palace toward the guest chambers. The only people who would frequent this corridor would be us, and of course, King Maswu, but he's locked himself away, you see. I don't think he's coming out anytime soon before the banquet. I'm curious to know what archonautical quandary you have discovered. Well, after the scion of body ran away, that is you, Princess Abasi Zahar, I saw a most concerning vision. Your father. And Sukhyon snaps their sharp black gaze over to Abasi, who's like still squinting at the prin, like very confused. Your father, pouring black oil out of his eyes and mouth. These visions interspersed over memories of my own father's death so, as you can understand, I am both professionally, politically, and personally involved. Sayer freezes. There is that oil again. Again? So you've seen it too? Yes, we have. But it was more specifically trailing behind something deep within the Wild Sea. We've also, and Zainan finally pulled out that chitin plate again. We've seen it with our eyes. I see. So these aren't just visions. The rumors of the calamities are true. But pray tell, do the four of you also get the same dream every night that I assume all the scions have been? Abasi, the dream of the fire and the buildings and the dragon and the burning and the wild sea collapsing. Uh, I, I, yes, but how you... Well, I've been assuming it has been a prophecy of some kind of calamity or destruction, devastation, an ill omen. I'm not 
particularly unused to ill omens. They're kind of my thing as the scion of mind, but these feel particularly pressing. Forgive me for my ignorance. You're forgiven. You can visually see her bite her tongue for a second and like rolls her tongue across her teeth. From my understanding, prophecies are typically centralized upon one person with the gift of prophetic sight. How is it amplified amongst people to all share one same prophecy? When the prophecy is related to all those involved, I have been feeling the resonance, not just across myself as scion of mine, but across time and space and duty. I could feel you, Princess Zahar, in these recurring nightmares I've been having every night, and I could feel the scion of heart as well. The nightmare of Aregnus. Aregnus, what is it? And Sayer, when he says that, says it with a pained snarl. And he kind of like steps forward, being incredibly intense. Aregnus is, of course, the world before the Verdancy, before the Wild Sea. That is what this plane of existence was once known as. But before Aregnus, there was, of course, the Wild Sea. It is a cycle, a cycle of destruction and renewal. The world was born green, and then the barons were born from greed and gold and fire and oil. They made the world Aregnus from the ashes of the green place, and now the green place has come back. And I suspect the oil is not very happy about that. The beginning is the end. The end is the beginning. Yes, precisely. A cycle. And greed caused this. Well... Historical tomes, the ones I've studied since I could read, since I could listen, understand, comprehend, state that it was the barons who created Aregnus from the ashes of the green place initially. Barons being, of course, the title that certain mortals claimed for themselves when they clawed themselves to the top of a self-made hierarchy. A hierarchy that they then named Aregnus, the world. And then, 300 years ago, the Verdancy came back. With a vengeance. Yes. I don't think anyone likes being burned to ashes, much less a world. It certainly isn't pleasant. Do you have first-hand experience with that, Zynan? Uh. <clears throat> you have not introduced yourself uh, to this person, by the way. Uh. I have experienced some ruin. Complicated and painful. My empathies to you. I suspect that if we do not address what is happening with King Maswu, what is happening with these nightmares that the Scions all share every evening, that ruin will come for us all. Hence why I am outside this door without a key. Flashing in Sayer's mind is his latest interaction, confrontation with the Oil Dragon as it replays when the Prin brings up the dream of King Maswu. And he envisions in his mind himself being drowned in covered head to toe with oil. And he looks over to the print and asks, perhaps futilely, what did you see with the king, with the oil, an engulfment? I saw the oil inside of him. 
It is a slick, wrong darkness spreading through his soul, spilling out through his eyes and mouth and ears. It has seized onto a part of him that is in all of us. Greed, fear, a desire for power that overwhelms a desire for anything else. It's gotten a hold of him. We looked into the oil. Everything makes sense. Do you think that is what's blocking you out? Yes. That and the door, of course. The door is quite an issue. But beyond the door, there is a slick, wrong, bad-smelling darkness that prevents me from truly seeing what is happening. You all know, of course, the stories of the three guides. The first guide rose. Rejoice! Rejoice! Mind went south to the thick of the wild, where death comes, life follows, where secrets fall, wisdom rises. Fear not the sea, but not knowing the sea. And people followed mind, and mind led them to safety. The second guide rose, rejoice, rejoice, body rose up in the core of the wild. We are the moving iron root, the clouds shift, we shift, fear not the sea, but not acknowledging the sea. And people followed body, and body led them to safety. The third guide rose, rejoice, rejoice, soul ventured north to the heart of the wild. The sea was never apart from us, it was always within. We are the thrash, the tangle, the darkness under eaves. Fear not the sea, but not loving the sea. And people followed soul, and soul led them to safety. I've been ruminating on these holy texts, these verses, for as long as these nightmares have struck me, I believe these visions of omen, of catastrophe, are related to King Masu Zahar's dark moods and the calamities that are striking fear in the hearts of all across the Verdancy. And I... I cannot just sit in front of my shrine wearing the crown of my past father and do nothing anymore. I, I want to. I have to act. I saw my father's death by possession of a dark spirit when I was just a child. When I was 13, I saw it happen and I could do nothing about it. And I do not want that to happen to anyone else. I do not want any other daughters to lose their fathers. Then let us help you. I knew you would. You have a greater calling, all of you, after all, beyond just this plane of existence? <clears throat> yes, we, uh, we do have a greater calling, Prin. Do not worry. Your secret is safe with me. I can see the dire consequences that would ripple outward along the rivers of fate if I were to divulge your secrets. Lamira is stuck for a second, ruminating over the words that the prince said, and also going back to the story of creation that was just recited to her. And she's kind of like going over it bit by bit and she's stuck in between the lines. Do you happen to have a copy? Most oral creation stories are, while they can be passed down orally, they typically are also written down somewhere. There might be something that is missed. 
of course, if you would like to comb over the story yourself, I can transcribe the story by hand, or I assume, Princess Ahar, that you have access to your royal library with many such scrolls and tomes that address this founding story. Her eyes get wide at royal library. Yeah, of course I do. But that's, that's, we have a banquet to contend with and what you said about my father. You think, Prin, do you think he's in danger of dying? That whatever strange mood has gripped him, whatever this oil corruption, I don't even care what this is, this, this curse, this oil curse, could it, could it kill my father? And a very grave look settles over the prince's face. Yes. The library can wait. We can, um, we have to help my dad. We have to help my father. Prince, can you help us? I can. Abasi, we're not gonna let that happen. Abasi turns to look at you, Sayer, and there is a kind of clear desperation in her dark eyes. A kind of desperation you've not seen until now, when the true stakes of what's at hand here are starting to trickle into realization. I am a proud person, Sayer, but even I understand when I need assistance. Thank you. We're gonna straighten this out. Nobody is going to lose anybody else that they care about. Not on my watch. Not on our watch. Not without one hells of a fight. <laughs> you can say that again. Exactly. Yeah, okay, then a plan. We should put together some kind of a plan. My father isn't coming out until the banquet. We're not gonna plan in this hallway. Well, then shall we come to the guest chambers? Please. Very well. Before that, I am a suspicious motherfucker. And we've been chatting about this in the hallway in front of the big door mm -hmm. with the dude that we're planning against is inside. Mm -hmm. I would like to give a good listen to hear what's going on in there. If they're shifting it's and moving. Of, like, must move. It's just been hearing yeah, 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 all yeah, of us chat about him. Yep. Yeah. I got something else right back behind that as well. I think I might like to dig into if possible after. Sounds good. Let's do Sayers first. Yes. So I think that's a instinct edge mm -hmm. or maybe veils. I have instincts. So I, could I'll, I will gladly take instinct. What skill are you bringing to the table? Sense. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. Sense works. All right. So it's 2d6. Okay. So roll that. Go for it. Five and a three. I'm actually, I was going to say, I'm actually going to cut one for difficulty because the prin could not sense what was beyond that door, and they're like psychic of some kind. Mm -hmm. So that's a three. Yep. You're right, that's a disaster. So <laughs> it's a failure and narrative complication or drawback. So what does it look like as you're trying to hear what's beyond that door? I think Sayer creeps a little forward, standing exactly where the print is, because I'm imagining the print's pretty close to the door to attempt to reach out to the mind of King Maswu. And he hunkers low and presses his ear close to oh, I am I am setting myself up for a conny backhand I know that I'm doing this Sayer leans towards the keyhole to either glance or listen at what is happening beyond the door Sure. You hunker down and you press your eye against that sliver of space provided by the keyhole, trying to peer into the shadowy depths of King Masu's study. And at first you see nothing, just darkness. Maybe he's just sitting in there, in complete veiled shadow. 
And then you think you see something shifting within the shadows, like a form moving within the darkness. And when you blink, you see a flash of fire. You see a flash of ash. You see a flash of oil coming towards you. And I think there's something within you that like instinctually jerks you away from that door, from that keyhole. Like you stagger backward a little bit and there's something ringing in your head. It's not a sound, it's not a vision, it's a smell. It is the smell of burning vegetation, burning flesh, ash cascading in rivers and showers and waterfalls all around you. And you blink again and you're back in this hallway. You have tried yet again to peer into this black oil, and it has yet again peered back into you. Sayer, there will be dire consequences. I need you to add a track to your inventory with a question mark for a name and three boxes and mark one. What do you what? In my inventory? Yes. Uh, 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 um, okay. Uh, Onto your character sheet. Okay. Uh, is this under any particular uh, resource or or uh, is this right next to your name? Okay. <laughs> All right, Lumira. What did you want to do? Well, fuck. I don't know if I want to do a thing now. <laughs> do think I want to learn my goddamn lesson? Um. Okay. Hold on. So I was trying to, I spent this entire time trying to figure out a way how I could narratively put this, but I want to, something about just like the teeming devastation that's leering upon the prince, that there's something coming that can't necessarily be be peered at, but it is afflicting him. I want to see if there's something I can do to see that. Sure. Like see what exactly it is, or like, even if it's just like a figure or a glimpse, a blurry image, whatever it is that got into him, I want to see the source of it. Into Maswu? Mm-hmm. Specifically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so how how are you trying to go about this? Because there's a closed door and multiple attempts to get past it have not gone very well. I have the Ancestral Spirit Companion. Oh, okay, okay. Or I can mark to learn a secret from the spectral realm. Fascinating. What does it look like as you're calling upon this ability of yours, manifesting in the wild sea? More often than not, Lumira uses her pocket watch as a fidget spinner. Subconsciously throughout all of this, while she's thinking, she's spinning it back and forth, the chain. So it's like rocking back and forth in between her fingers. And I think from there, it's like a pulse of energy that I don't even think she realizes she lets out as she's contemplating this. Into it. As you are fidgeting with this pocket watch and you're kind of clicking at it and thinking and trying to draw upon some otherworldly knowledge to come and help you in this moment. There's a moment as you press your thumb against the clicker of the pocket watch, you click and everything freezes. For a half second around you, it seems like 
time just stops. You see Zion, like, head down, right, the brim of their hat obscuring their face. You see Sayer in the middle of leaping away from the keyhole as though struck by a bolt of lightning. You see Sing with her arms crossed and her brow furrowed in concentration and focus. You see the Prin, you see Abasi, and you see the Drifter. Standing behind the Prin, this flickering, glitching, shadowy figure that you saw in the clock tower that you saw briefly in front of the Soulthorn gates in Siren Song that you see now just still on the periphery of your vision like a black silhouette behind the Prin. You can't see their face, you can't even see if they have a body, but you know that they are pointing at the Prin. No, they're pointing at something beyond the Prin, and your eyes track it in bullet time. Your pupils slide over to where the drifter's pointing, and you see a ghost at the end of this hallway, reaching a desperate, loving hand out toward the Prin, and you see a man who looks like the Prin, but much older, with a kind of grizzled gray beard around his face, and eyes that are sunken in and hollowed by exhaustion and some kind of curse that had ate at him while he was alive, but is now no longer with him in death. And you see the ghost of the prince's father reaching out toward his child, mouthing a word, a clue, desperately toward his beloved one that he's left behind, Oregonus. Click, time comes back, the drifter is gone, the ghost is gone, you're back in the hallway. That word, Aregnus, the name of the world before, there is something more to that word, to that concept, Lumira. Your ancestral spirit, Drifter, has spoken to you. Zynan, what have you been doing this whole time? Zynan was originally going to listen to see if he could hear Maswu, but the more the conversation got in with the Prin, and the more the Prin touched on things that kept pulling Zynan's attention away. By the time he was thinking about listening, he was already distracted thinking about dust, thinking about decay and burning, and then hearing the story again about the founding of the world. His attention even gets pulled away from the Prin to Abasi worrying about how she's taking this. So any constructive thing he might have done as a agent just goes out the window because suddenly he is in a hallway full of people and he can almost feel their hearts beating. He is so worried about them. I think we pull back on Zynan as Sayer reels away from the door as Lumira kind of situates herself back in her body and the Prin is finishing their sentence. Ah, yes, we should probably go back to my guest quarters if we want to continue this conversation in some semblance of confidentiality. Are you all right, Sayer? Sayer clatters to the ground, falling onto his gauntlets. Whoa. Sing takes a step forward towards you. Uh, Sayer! Are you okay? You have to be more careful. Here. And your twin reaches down to help you up. It takes a heartbeat too long for Sayer to take Sing's hand. His pupils are so wide that they almost encompass all of the blue of his iris. And he is hyperventilating. He is drenched in sweat. And his hand shakily, like, grabs onto Sing. And I think Sing will notice that when he, like, lifts himself up, when you're lifting someone who's been through a lot, they kind of pull down a little too hard on your given hand. 
And that is what he does towards mm. Sing's arm. And he steps up and he's mm. like, I'm okay, I'm okay. Okay. But you can tell Sing doesn't fully believe you. Her pink eyes are narrowed in that way that she always narrows them at you when she knows you're hiding something. But then her eyes glance at the rest of the hallway, registers that this is not the best place to talk about whatever it is that you just went through, turns back toward the Prin. Lead the way. We cut now to the Prin's guest quarters, and as Abasi had promised, beautiful guest chambers, a vast, vast bedroom, there's like a balcony, a beautiful little shrine that the Prin has set up, a lounge area, and various statues and flowers, wreathing pillars supporting an arched ceiling, and beams of moonlight from the twin moons in the sky, shuddering in through chiffon curtains, and a nice, pleasant evening breeze wafting in through the open window. Plenty of places for you to sit down, plenty of places for you to either lie on the ground or sit on a table or a desk or a chair or even on the bed. The prin slides the door shut behind them, continues to clasp their fingers in front of their hip, and when all of you are situated inside, they nod curtly at your party. I had a plan. I still have a plan going into the banquet, and I think I need some help to properly enact it if you are so interested. If I can lock eyes with the king, I can see into his mind. I can figure out exactly what it is that is plaguing him and perhaps Learn the means by which to stop it. To save him, save the Raya, save the Wild Sea. But he has been most recalcitrant, reluctant to come out of his room. I do not think he will be an easy person to pin down during the banquet. The best chance that we have at me locking eyes with him is when the dinner itself actually begins after the soiree, the dancing and the mingling and whatnot. I can arrange myself to sit so I'm in a good position to lock eyes with him, but I'm going to need all of your help to make sure that he looks at me. How long do you need? Not very long. A single second should suffice. That shouldn't be hard. Arachnus. And I think ever since that last interaction, Lumira's stare has been off. In her movement, it's almost like she's glitching while she's trying to get fully settled back into where exactly that she is. And she stutters a bit before like confidently saying Arachnus, like repeating it two or three times. It has something to do with Arachnus. The world before. Yes. Yes, no, but what's afflicting him? There's something deeper there. Something deeper? Well, whatever it is, I will find it when I look into his eyes. That much I can guarantee you. Be careful. We don't know what we're up against. The Prin holds your gaze, as there is a very dire expression and note in your voice as you say this, like an actual mortal danger sort of situation as you're looking at the Prin. The Prin takes us in, Their face hasn't changed much. They don't seem to emote or express a lot with their face, but there is something about the slight quirk of their head that suggests they're taking your warning very seriously. I will be. As careful as I can. If need be, if it seems as though what is afflicting him has wormed its way into my consciousness as well, 
I ask that you all sever the connection, break our eye contact with each other. We'll try and keep an eye on it. Not gonna abandon you, though. Great. Yes, I would hate to die, and in such terrible a fashion. Just don't look at the oil. I am afraid I must. If you mustn't, don't gaze too deeply. Don't challenge it. The prin cocks their head in your direction, Sayer. Speaking from personal experience? Or just as a friendly warning? Sayer looks directly into the prince's eyes. And the image of him in his room, sitting in front of his journal, before a croak of a entity of oil and fire flashes in his mind. And he says nothing. It appears that perhaps I am not the only prophet of disaster in this room. Anyway, are there any other things we should discuss before we tuck in for bed? I'm getting quite sleepy. It's 9pm. Just that, uh, Prin, Abasi, this is your world. You two are two of the three scions that I would take as the voice of this world. Sure, you have parents that are entangled in all this. So does Amergen. What do you want? I just don't want any more children to lose their parents. I want my father back. I want the riot to stop declaring war on Siren Song. And I want everything to go back to the way it was in the Wild Sea, when there weren't these calamities, when I could just be a sky warrior and think about what it might be to sail the seas and have my silly fucking rivalry with Amargen. I just... That's what I want. Things can never be the way they were. All you can do is try to move forward and make sure you take the steps so it never happens again. And with that... Instead of your tournament, consider this a better challenge. The two of you have a war to stop, a third scion to help, and a world to save. We're just here to help. Thank you. Sing cuts in, half jokingly, half appraisingly. <sighs> yes, a third scion to find. Uh, Prin Him Soo Hyun being a prophet and a visioneer and all, you wouldn't be able to see where she is by any chance, would you? Oh, I know where she is. What? Where? I've seen her in my visions. The ones that come to me. The ones that bind me to the rest of the scions. And where's that? Yes, yes, uh, Soo Hyun, where is Amarjin? Hello, my nemesis! Lumira's head is cocked to the side and eyebrow is like up to her hairline at this point. Well, no one's asked me if I know where Amargen is until now, so it, it, the topic just never came up. But I have seen Amargen in several different places, too, to be specific. And based on the location of the sun in these visions, I believe she is traveling. In one of the visions, the first of several that I've received about her whereabouts, I saw what I can only describe as a monk's ship. A small, humble, wooden vessel with a quiet and dexterous bite. She was surrounded by figures whose faces I could not see. Theirs were obscured by ash, oil, 
smoke. Not literal detritus. This wasn't a very messy or polluted vessel, but archonautic debris, something magical preventing me from scrying the truth. The next place I saw Amergen was in what I can only describe as a temple of sorts, a brief foray into the green darkness beyond the thrash, beyond even the tangle I suspect into the sink and the drown, a dark place, a cold place, bittersweet, like sour creserin, a temple, an old sunken dead temple covered with moss and old expired things. Amergen was in there looking for something, a place, a location, no, an entrance. And then the next couple of visions I've received have been more of this monk ship moving, traveling, looking for that something together, going east. Well, fuck. Well, that's extremely helpful. Yeah, if you could have led with that, maybe I just Abbasi. Been, oh, well, at least she's okay. I I know, I know, I know, I know. I just I've been worried about Armagen because Cause she's your nemesis. Yes, we know. Nothing else in the wild sea can kick her ass, because I I have to be the one to kick her ass. Cause she's your nemesis. Yes, because she is my nemesis, Lumira. Sayer puts an arm on Abasi's uh, shoulder and just like pulls a bossy close to him in a very like eh, eh, eh. Uh, but then looks over to Lumira and says this puts the dredging in a different light doesn't it that we saw if and she gets lost for a second before she gathers her words this is a lot bigger than we thought it was eastward then nothing we can't handle right exactly we got this I wouldn't want to make things worse, would I? And she turns. Sayer catches that. And I think you see that like brightness that he had in chatting and opening up snuffed out like a candle. And he looks away. The days pass. King Maswu continues hiding in the shadows of his study and Strike Team Nova embarks on your particular preparations. As the sun rises and sets three more times, we finally push in on the royal palace on the evening of the fourth day and the dawn of the farewell banquet. But before we pull in on the banquet itself, we pan over to that nearby complex, the Raya's guest quarters, where Strike Team Nova is preparing for your chance to get face to face with King Maswu. We see a pair of dexterous fingers fumbling over a simple strip of cloth, attempting a knot in 1,000 different ways and failing every time. Lumira, you know how to figure out the exact skeletal structure and muscular makeup of every common life form in the multiverse, but you don't know how to tie a tie. And when you realize that this task, this final hurdle toward a finished outfit for the evening is borderline impossible for yourself, who do you turn to for assistance? I think after trying for the 50th time, she just like gives up and like lets the tie just like sit loosely around her neck. And she's like looking in the mirror like, yeah, I can get with this, like real, real casual. 
Don't even have to worry about it. Too cool to wear a tie in the first place the right way. We wear ties however we want to, and no one ever has to know that we could not figure this out at all. Shing! The oracle appears in the mirror next to you and just says, you look terrible. Shing! And it goes away. She rips the tie from around her neck and throws it on the table. It's just like... <sighs> Everything all right in here? Zainan steps through the door hearing the loud sound. He's wearing not as much clothing as you're used to seeing him wear. He's usually in layers upon layers upon layers of fabric. And all you see him in are very full looking black pants, very different than his very trim black pants that he usually wears. And uh, just a like slightly wrap, almost tank top like garment that just very, very loosely falls at his sides. But you can see exposed his arms that are tight with uh, almost like a lattice work of scars that while it isn't surprising given the amount of scars on his face, his neck, it's very uncharacteristic to see and he wears them not with any shyness. He just walks through the door like this is normal. We all just do this and you could just see and Lumira with your keen eyes, you would probably uh, recognize that some of them are from either dryness or burns um, that kind of crack across his body. But he just, there's no tension or like pain to it. He just wears them like they are his skin because they are. And he is not wearing his hat or any sort of adornment, just walking around, getting ready for the banquet. What'd that tie do to you? I was actually, um, you know, just debating on whether or not if I wanted to wear it, I guess. What about you? What do you think? And she like steps out and like raises her arms up and Lumira is dressed in what looks like um, like a three-piece Newsies suit, like a, like a, like trousers and a nice vest and a jacket. But the suit itself is made of moss and like dark green, like shimmery early morning dew moss. And underneath her blouse itself looks like ivy branches that have came up and adorn around the lapels. And she has like a little matching little Newsies cap that she's uh, wearing that's kind of like tilted off over to the side. Tie. No tie. You know, the, uh, the branches look I a little, look uh, no, you look, this is a very nice suit. Something needs to kind of contain those branches, though. Here, let me, let me help you with that. And he picks up the tie and walks towards you. Um, I, permission to speak freely. Lumira, we're peers. You can speak freely whenever you want. I was having a bit of trouble trying to tie it. Oh, well, these things are tricky. Took me a while to figure them out, too. Want help? Um, if it's not too much. Ah. I want to look perfect. I mean, clothes don't make you look perfect, but they're not that bad. Come here. And he, uh, 
hands you the tie to kind of like let you situate it underneath your hair and everything, but he turns your collar for you very gently, not like grabbing you, just lightly flipping it up. And there's a gentleness to this that he doesn't show very often. And you can see there's kind of a softness to his green eyes as he does it. You, uh, you have good taste. This is, uh, well chosen. Well, I have had nothing but the best influence, right? You don't, (laughs) you clean up very well yourself. Oh. And he has actually had, like, a nicer shave than his usual scruffy self. Oh, well. This is actually one of the first times I've had to get new clothes on a new plane. I usually just wear what I wear. I'm a little out of my element myself. Do you mind? I think I might be able to help. Your hair can... It's got like a little cowlick oh, right here. Yeah. Hold on one second. And she goes over to her vanity and opens like this drawer and you just see all these hair care products like creams and oils and conditioners and gels and she kind of pulls out like this waxy pomade and rubs it in between her hands and then just like kind of steps up onto her bed so she's like above you and it's just kind of like fluffing it out and smoothing it out and giving it like a little a little flick to it he undoes a little bit you (laughs) you've you've found a secret spot uh and he just kind of like leans into it and you can see like his his white hair getting all blended in with his you know otherwise kind of purpley hair and he just kind of like leans against your hands just little scritches and i'm just like moving pieces over and fixing like these last little couple of stray pieces and it's like that's a knockout right there <laughs> thanks you know i didn't think i was suited to working with someone from phoenix again but you were a Pleasant surprise, Lamira. Well, to be fair, after Phoenix, I wasn't sure how much longer my career at Trans would last, so I'm grateful that I was welcomed with open arms, for what it's worth. I'm not exactly one to judge, and whatever you did on Phoenix is your business, and you are quite gifted in what you do, so... I'm grateful to have you. Thanks. All right, come here. And he very slowly walks you through step by step a very simple, clean knot for your tie. Just a simple foreign hand. The tenseness in her shoulders, as soon as she ties it herself and like gets it situated, immediately drops. And she just grins like smoothing herself out and her suit and like putting her hand in her pocket. She goes over to her side bedroom table and grabs her pocket watch that's on this chain and kind of connects it to like the middle front button and it just like sits on the little pocket of her vest. Zynan smiles a very slow, very warm smile and He is smiling at you and a memory. We cut away from this moment 
to find the twins also preparing for the banquet in their guest room. Sing is putting on the final touches of her gala outfit, kind of humming a nice tune to herself in the mirror. The cherry blossoms in their hair are in full, full bloom, just spraying petals everywhere. And we see Sing in a crisp white suit with these pink embellishments that kind of look like if Numira's were moss, then these look like lichen but in like a nice kind of pink patina that crisscrosses looking like watercolor splashes across Singh's suit in a very artsy and elegant fashion. We also see Sayer putting on an outfit of his own. Sayer, what does your attempt to pull on your ball regalia look like? Sayer has been buttoning and unbuttoning his red asymmetric kurta and where Lumira's is a deep forest green, directly opposite the color wheel is this shade of red. He has these gold accents all around the patterns, these floral patterns around his arms, his shoulders, and he is fiddling with this buttons, and he's buttoned all the way up, as expected with an outfit like this. But he looks so imprisoned in this uh, buttoning up. And he tries to deter his attention away by tying a red sash around his waist where he will place his crescent blades more in a, in a ceremonial fashion. They are magically sealed as is custom at banquets like this. But they are there and they look quite fashionable. And while he is trying to distract himself from the buttons, he takes a brooch and this brooch was gifted by a certain scion, and it is a brooch of a wild panther that he clips onto his chest. He fiddles with his sleeves that have gold patternings of feathers, cassowary feathers, up his arm, up to his shoulder, and underneath his gauntlets, so that they match the entire way through. And once he is done with all of that he continues to fiddle and he kind of like looks over at sing and he goes you're in a good mood did abasi ask you to the dinner yeah well i what huh abasi yeah who else oh um well we're all gonna you know show up to the ball together as a unit so yes we're going to be going to the banquet together say unbuttons the top button did Abasi not ask you? She... I mean, she uh, made a whole thing about it. She asked me and everything. Well, I mean... Okay, Sayer, yes, she did ask me last night. It was really sweet, but I... I said that maybe we should just go as friends to her. Friends? Yeah. You know? It, it just... You and Abasi? Yeah. I thought... I thought you were closer than that. Well... I mean, we... I like Abasi, don't get me wrong. She's charming, she's handsome, she's very sweet, and she's funny and, and hot, but I'm not into her like that. His fists tighten around the second button, and that also comes off. Why do you do that? Do what? Flirt and don't mean it. Um... <laughs> and Singh turns away from the mirror to look at you, and the cherry blossoms that are are in full bloom on her antlers stop falling 
in these gorgeous cascades of petals, they just freeze. Okay, where is this coming from? I just... I don't like it when you do this. You flirt with so many people. Okay, why is that a problem? Because you lose interest, and then I have to deal with the fallout thing. Wait, so me flirting with other people and making choices about who I want to flirt with is somehow a you problem? Of course it's a me problem. Who do you think they go to after what? you ghost them? What are you talking about? Oh my god, is this about a bossy? Cove? Cove? Yeah, Cove, that other girl who hangs out with you sometimes in the trans cafeteria, she comes to me too crying. Cove fucking hates me. What? <sighs> and it's because you do this. You flirt with them, but you don't mean it. Uh, Cove, okay, hold on. Cove doesn't hate you because I flirt with her and don't mean it, okay? Cove hates you because you almost killed her. Honestly, on more than one occasion. Cove hated me before that, and you know that. Why do you think I've been flirting with her, Sayer? You really think Cove would take the earliest opportunity that she would get to go crying to Lucy about how you almost killed her today or yesterday or tomorrow to get you kicked out of trans, okay? And frankly, it's because of me flirting and not meaning it that you've been able to stay here in the first place. I don't just with people's feelings because I want to or I think it's fun or that I like having power or like manipulating people or something like that. I do it to look out for you, Sayer, because frankly, you, you need to be looked out for. How many times have you gotten us into a mess and I've had to flirt or charm or talk our way out of it? Like I, I've st stopped counting after 24, 25, 60, I, it doesn't matter. Look, I just, I'm not just flirting with people just to flirt with them, okay? People are supposed to like me. They're supposed to love me. They want me to flirt with them, okay? I'm the chosen one. I'm supposed to be, you know, available. That's the point. I am not a millstone around your neck. Oh my God, I didn't say yes. ask you to protect me. And yes, you asked me if this is about Bossy. Of course it's about a Bossy. Well, I'm I sorry. I actually like a Bossy. Were her... You, you like like her? Not like that. Okay. Not like that. <laughs> well, don't but think- But she deserves better, Sing. She deserves transparency. She's not just anybody. She's clearly chosen by fate in her own way. She's <sighs> the scion of body. The scion of Raya. Okay, and you think I don't know what it feels like to be chosen by fate and have all of that on me? I was trying to be honest with her when I, I wouldn't, it would have been even meaner to say yes, okay? To go to this gala, this banquet as a date, because then I, I'd be going with two people as dates and that's just not fair to either of them. And I don't- Two people? Just- Okay, just forget what I said, okay? About a bossy- No, 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 I... you you brought that up. No, you finished that thought. Don't try to surf past that. Okay, I'm going with Lumira. Is that a problem? Sarah says nothing, but Singh will know that that is indeed a problem. Don't do this, Lumira. Excuse me? Don't do whatever this thing is that you do. Don't- What? Don't hurt her like that. For your information, Sayer, I actually really like Lumira. And 
I was hoping that while we were getting ready for the banquet that maybe I could even talk to you about it. Like we used to before you started getting all close to Abasi and closed off and not confiding in me anymore and your own thing. What? What's wrong with me being friends with Abasi? We just, wrong we have the you. same hobbies. That's fine. That's fine. You can be friends. I want you to have friends outside of me, Sayer. Okay? I do. I want you. I genuinely, I want you. I'm happy for you that you're friends with Abasi. Okay? I'm happy. I'm just, I like Lumira. And I'm, it's really rich coming from you saying don't do this to her, because last I checked, you're the one who keeps hurting her. You talk about people running to you after I toy with them in your perspective when really I'm just trying to look out for you and be the person that everyone wants me to be? Well, who do you think came running to me after you exploded at her? <sighs> Sayer looks at Sing in a look that can only be described as how dare you, not you of all people throwing that in my face. And Sayer looks at Singh and says, it's very rich of you to say that, and another, the buttons just, he just pulls at his shirt and all of the buttons up to the asymmetric point pull off. It's rich of you to talk about what it feels like to be saddled with everything. I cannot do a single thing ever, anywhere, in trance, in any plane of existence, without your shadow. <sighs> and on his antlers, tiny thorns grow along the branches of the cherry blossoms. And I'm not hiding anything from you. As you say that, Sayer, your shadow on the floor flickers just slightly so imperceptibly that Sing doesn't even notice. You know what? Just forget it, okay? I I just want to have a good night with Lumira, with Nova, with whoever I want to have a good night with. So let's just forget this, okay? Fine. Fine. Have your good night. And you have your good night. I'm going to get ready in my own room. Yeah, I'll see you there. And Sing turns and kind of storms off to the door. As she opens the door, she pauses at the threshold and sort of jabs over her shoulder at you, not turning to look at you past that mane of white hair. And you know, you could step out of my shadow whenever you wanted to. That's on you. And she steps into the hall and closes the door. As we pull away from this moment, the sky darkens and the banquet begins in earnest. The Aminu Banquet Hall is a long, majestic chamber. Granite pillars support a vaulted ceiling made of glass, revealing a dazzling evening sky of purple plumes and twin moons. The sandstone doors are thrown open in all four directions, giving free access to the surrounding gardens that sparkle in the courtyard beyond. A cool, gentle breeze wafts through the banquet hall, carrying the smell of pollen and delicious aromas from a busy kitchen. The walls of this chamber are decorated with intricate carvings that depict a story in chronological order. First, we see the Guide of Body, 
Abbasi's ancestor, leading a sea of people out of the burning ruins of a foregone world. Then we see the guide grab the peaks of a nearby mountain and hurdle them into the sky with sheer brute force. Next, we see these peaks hanging in midair, suspended by magic radiating from the guide's powerful form. And finally, we see the guide leading their people up into the sky with mechanical wings, where they get to work building a kingdom amongst the clouds. Guests mill through this banquet hall. We see officials in feathered robes, wild sailor crews in tattered vests with harmless ceremonial weapons strapped to their waists, even sky warriors with colorful plumage fanning from their wrists and ankles. A band plays on an elevated dais, blending lyres, lutes, drums, and harps to create an upbeat but elegant soundscape. A long, regal table dominates the center of this hall, currently unhampered by food. Your party emerges from the eastern doors, framed by the light of the twin moons in the gardens behind. I want to know who arrives first, what you look like as you step into the light of this banquet hall, and who, if anyone, is by your side. Sayer arrives like a hurricane. His bright red kurta almost glistening with the gold accents in the light of the banquet hall. And as he emerges, he realizes that he maybe walked two to three steps a little faster than the person he is bringing. And he kind of like uh, scurries back and lends an arm outward to Abasi as they lock arms and he kind of like puts on a face of a gentleman holding like Abasi's arm in his and gently ushering them uh, down the steps into the banquet hall and he keeps fiddling with the buttons with his other hand and he looks over to Abasi and says not the entrance that I know you wanted but uh I hope it, it'll do. Yeah, next to you, we see a bossy. She's wearing these beautiful silk trousers cinched at the ankles with a matching silk sash around her waist and this sheer blouse with pleated sleeves and a shawl of translucent mantis drake wings. And her hair is combed and gelled for once. And she's got some fiercely black eye makeup on. And as she steps down the staircase with you, you know, arm in arm, very bro-like, you know what I mean? Like very yeah. not romantic, Yeah, this is a very bro arm yes. in arm. It's bro not arm. elegant. Yep. Nope. Like both it's of, all square and masculine. Like, yep, you're going you're down. Very square, masculine, toned arms. Yep. Uh, Sayer's uh, sleeves are very tailored very tightly to his arms. So your biceps are like bulging. Yeah. <laughs> They're bulging and it looks like he they are a couple of pressure points away from just ripping if he isn't careful. <gasps> oh uh, my God. And he and he just uh, lowers Abasi and walks with, with them and he also has eye makeup on. He's wearing Ooh. a kajal on the eye on his lower eyelid. Lovely. That flare the tip. And his hair is still shaggy, but definitely looks like there's at least pot made in it now. 
Yeah, you put some kind of gel in there. Abasi wouldn't have let he, you. He put something there. Some kind of gel. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> there, there was a there was a adjustment of his outfit. I'm pretty sure before. Yes, a uh, last minute touch up. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, as you both like step onto the final landing and cast your gaze across this banquet hall, Abasi just kind of lets out a, well, you know, not the entrance I think either of us were expecting, but it's fine. You know, we're gonna have a good night. Gonna rescue my dad from potentially being killed by some kind of oil curse. We're gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. And her eyes kind of linger on when she says, not the night either of us expected, on Lumira, who we now see doing her entrance. Lumiro, why don't you tell us what do you look like as you step into the banquet hall and who is by your side? Um, Lumira is dressed super dapper and fine. All the moss on her suit seems to sh shine and shimmer directly no matter which way you look at it in the light. It just looks dewy and fresh right off of her. The only difference is, is that she's actually pressed her hair out. So her hair that is normally like in its natural curly state, it now is straightened and probably hangs to like the middle of like right below her butt. It's very thick and long when it's actually straightened. And she reaches her hand out for Sing to grab and does like that thing where she has her hand up and then like her other hand is like carefully like just gently on the small of her back like helping her down the stairs as we come in. Yep, Sing takes your hand, floats down the stairs like she's walking on air above them kind of and then like touches down elegantly upon the final landing and we see her in that beautiful white and pink suit that matches yours perfectly and her hair has even more flowers in it than usual and the flowers wound around her antlers seem to be particularly arranged she's got some makeup going on as well that accentuate the vibrant pinkness of her eyes and a big pearly white toothy smile as she touches down upon this final landing and turns to you with a grin i like take like a little a little nod from zynan with my little hat and just like fix it and nod on my head a little bit Nice tie. Thank you. Uh, Pop Pop helped me tie it, that is. Oh, Pop Pop helped, did he? You know, he always ends up finding his way to warm in when you last expect it. I'm giving <laughs> a really weird but poignant piece of advice. I know, when he right? He's really every good time. at that. He's really good yeah. at that. Yeah, it's like his thing. And Sing glances over her shoulder up the landing to find Zynan at the top of the stairs. Zynan, what do you look like as you come into the banquet hall and who, if anyone, is by your side? Zynan, alone, stands at the top wearing a different voluminous amount of fabric. He has traded in his very practical wrap shawl and layers of duster and jacket and shirt for a more wrapped and elegant look. Over the shirt that he wore when he saw Lumira, he wears two more layers of loose open front fabric. The inner one is just a peak of 
heavy swirling embroidery of clouds over black but in gold just like his trans colors tend to be the next layer a more traditional uh haori type garment an open front jacket matches it almost exactly in the way that it hangs it is black but with black leather down the front and then over the top of that he wears a elegant firmly shaped cloak that seems to roll over itself the outer layer of it this kind of mossy but almost like fuzzy black fabric uh, either a heavy wool or if you get a little closer you might see that it does have a little bit of moss actually tucked into it kind of weaving a vine-like pattern through it but the underside which turns over and lays over his shoulder is actually greens and blues that are all swirled together in a textile that has birds woven into it and he does not wear his hat or anything and he looks different he looks younger as he stands there and looks over the party and has a smile that warms his cheeks from a kind of dull purple to a almost bluish with a touch of pink right at the edges as he steps down the fabric flowing behind him in the cape kind of holding it all together as he does and he stops at the bottom of the stairs and looks at Sing and Lumira what are you two doing? come on get in there we didn't want to walk in without our chaperone exactly I'm not here to chaperone anyone tonight except for them and he looks off to find the print you don't see the print, actually. This is also still quite early in the banquet evening. You're like maybe in the middling 50% of people to arrive. So there's still people trickling in and out, in and out. You cast your gaze across the banquet hall, trying to find the prim in their robes, their middling height, very easily blending into the shadows. So you have to like go over the crowd of a fine tooth comb to find them. And as your party's trying to look for your contact, the band upon its elevated dais plays the final note of their current song to very hearty applause from the audience. And when the applause dies down, the drummer starts beating a ceremonial rhythm, followed by a very insistent regal strumming of the lute. And every single attendee turns their attention toward the western doors and a hush falls over the audience. And we see at the western doors a person framing the threshold. And stepping into the banquet hall is King Maswu Zahar. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to Charles, Cora Eckert, Brooke Bright, River, Chiakres, Lex Slater, Scrofasis, Hat, Alex, Mark J, Lyle and Peanut, Spencer, Brooke in Seattle, Aria, Derek Davidson, Phil, Jordan, Cassidy, and Rose. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!